one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 229, John Komnenos, with Dr. Maximilian Lau. Today we talk to the man whose research has guided our last few podcasts, Dr. Maximilian Lau. Dr. Lau is adjunct professor of economic history at Hitotsubachi University in Tokyo and also a research associate in history at St. Bennett's Hall, University of Oxford. He's been studying 12th century Byzantine history for many years now, and the fruits of that labor can be found in his forthcoming book, Rebuilding New Rome, the Foreign Policy of John II, Komnenos. The book is written and will be out next year, and Dr. Lau very generously shared it with me in advance. It's been incredibly helpful in part because of its quality, but also because it follows a format similar to our narrative episodes. It is a chronological account of John's military and political activity, with a discussion of the sources as each incident unfolds. As Dr. Lau explains in the interview, John's reign often gets short shrift in popular Byzantine books because our Roman sources cover him fairly briefly. But there are plenty of other sources to work with, and Dr. Lau has synthesized them to create a new history of John's reign. This book has similarities in style and structure to Antony Caldellus's book, Streams of Gold, Rivers of Blood, which I also highly recommend. But Dr. Lau's book goes one further and has a superb collection of photos from sites all across the empire. Most of these were taken by Dr. Lau during his travels while researching the book. As we discuss in the interview, many of the forts John captured or built still stand in Turkey today. Before we begin the interview, I thought I should just touch base with you all about our Roman sources for this period, Nikitas Coniates and John Kinemos. We've talked about Coniates before, he's the one who says that Anna wanted to kill John and become empress herself. And as you may recall, he was writing after the sack of Constantinople in 1204 AD. Kinemus, too, wrote later during John's son's reign. Now, I will be talking more about Kinemus and Coniates when we get into Manuel's story, but several listeners did ask why we don't know more about John the person or his domestic agenda. 
and the basic answer is that neither of our Roman historians actually witnessed John's reign. But for a more in-depth answer, let's talk to Dr. Lau. Dr. Maximilian Lau, welcome to the History of Byzantium. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, as I said in the introduction, I was absolutely thrilled to get to look at your book before it's published. It's been our guide to John's life, and uh, it's wonderful to talk to you now. First off, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? What led you to Byzantium, and then why John Komnenos? Uh, of course, yeah. Um, so, I mean, like, like most people, I mean, I you know, did mainly modern uh, stuff through school. Um, then I was lucky enough uh, for my undergrad degree, you had to do a bit of medieval and a bit of ancient, you know, in order to get a history degree. Uh, and so initially, because I was forced to, I suppose. Uh, but then, yeah, I mean, I, you know, like most people, I said, you know, started reading about the first crusade and then heard about this Byzantium thing for the first time. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, sort of, and then, you know, I was very lucky in that sort of, uh, Paul Magdaleno, who is, uh, sort of the, the, the big name for, uh, Manuel, uh, Komnenos, who I'm sure sort of you'll be hearing from a lot more uh, in future episodes of the podcast. He was actually sort of, um, my undergraduate tutor and therefore sort of taught me about Anna Comnini. There was a whole module on this kind of thing. Um, and then even at that point, kind of, you know, cause obviously he talked a lot about Ma Manuel and then sort of Alexios. And then, yeah, I, there's this sort of John guy in the middle. Um, and so even as an undergrad, uh, I sort of thought, oh, this is a bit weird. So there's nothing written on a whole emperor. Um, and then uh, for my uh, dissertation kind of thing that came up, I uh, then said, oh, well, how about this John guy? And then I think the uh, my supervisor there sort of laughed at me uh, and more or less said, oh, yeah, that's at least a doctorate. Um, you know, good, 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 good luck, you know, finding anything in that black hole uh, <laughs> sources. Um, and, you know, and so, you know, I ended up doing something on the Varangian Guard, actually. Uh, but then, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to, you know, get some funding and stuff. And, and so sort of, you know, uh, ended up doing uh, my master's and then doctorate on, on John just to, I don't know, just to prove that, you know, actually you can find some light in this black hole. Um, so, yeah, that's, I suppose, my, my path to John was, um, you know, obviously very fortunate with, with, with the odd grant. And otherwise, um, just, just realizing that, oh, there's a lot written on Lexius and there's a lot written on Manuel and there's nothing on a whole emperor in the middle. Yeah, well, we are very grateful to you for stepping into the breach and um, something uh, quite different to a lot of books that I end up reading for the podcast. You actually did uh, extensive field work and so there's wonderful photos throughout the book of places where John was or, or John's army built things or occupied things. Um, can you tell the listeners about your travels, some of the places you went, and, and how it informed your understanding of, of John? Sure, I, I'd be happy to. I mean, it's certainly the, the, the fun part of the whole research thing. I mean, it's still 90% you know, time in the library, um, you know, probably 99%. But, yeah, this, this, was, this was the good bit. And, yeah, it came up when, I mean, I, I was reading kind of in some of these sources, it says, oh, John built a fort or he occupied something, as you said. Um, but then, you know, there's, there's no, and then, I, you know, I Google that place, as anyone would, sort of, you, know, show, you know, what is this? I mean, is it... A massive you know invasion stopping fortress is it a glorified watchtower you know is it near a town is it near a river is it the middle of nowhere you know what what is this thing um and then yeah my, my supervisor then just said well i mean if there's no pictures of this and there's no studies on this then you should probably go visit uh and this was kind of a bit sort of revelation kind of thing and so more or less i um uh, contacted the the british institute at ankara 
um, who are very, very helpful on this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, sort of used their library there, used maps, rented a kind of big old Toyota Hilux thing, um, and, you know, kind of took to the road, really. Uh, and so I've, I've done kind of, um, well, several sort of trips, I mean, particularly sort of also in Serbia and places as well. Um, uh, even Iran, Iran slightly memorably, but that's a whole other story. Um, but uh, <laughs> so Turkey, Turkey-wise, uh, yeah, no, I sort of did, I mean, most of sort of John's sort of broad campaigns that uh, you've talked about in the last few episodes, I mean, I'm more or less trying to kind of just follow these. Uh, I mean, so one particular example would be then sort of uh, just sort of I've, I've, uh, after Istanbul flew into Konya, um, sort of, you know, Ic- you know uh, Iconian kind of thing, and then went sort of, you know, to the lake of the little islands that you talked about in the last one, uh, and then down to kind of the more tourist-friendly city of Italia, and then kind of along the coast, kind of following that sort of, you know, that sort of great campaign of John all the way to Antakya, you know, Antioch. Um, and, yeah, lo- loads of these places... Um, you know, are completely uh, uncurated. I mean, there's no kind of exit through the gift shop kind of thing. Um, I mean, there's still, ve- I mean, some of them are sort of very wild. I mean, as another example, um, I mean, just finding them is, is part of the problem. I mean, so Ankara, sort of one of these uh, you know, fortresses he builds, uh, and it's sort of mentioned, you know, Kiniata, you know, Coniatis, whoever, he builds a, um, uh, you know, sort of a fortress in a place called Ankaris. And then we know that this thing is ne- roughly near, you know, roughly where it is, you know, sort of river wise. And then I find a kind of I don't know, 19th century archaeologist who encountered this thing uh, near a kind of small village called Belakasir. These days, Belakasir is a huge city. Um, and so, OK, where is this thing? And, you know, I sort of turn up, I go to the archaeological museum. I say, you know, where is this with a kind of a you know, grainy black and white photo of some variety? Um, and then, you know, they shrug my sh- their shoulders at me. Uh, and then you kind of just go around trying to find these things, sort of, you know, roughly sort of following the river or following, you know, whatever landmarks you can. Um, and then that particular case, and actually, I mean, there's this kind of, you know, sort of 19th century thing of kind of rolling hills and then the sort of fortress coming out of it on like a Welsh fort or something. Um, and actually, uh, you know, th- it's, there's a modern hydroelectric power station there now and it's kind of at the the side of a lake kind of thing and obviously there's huge great gates and everything else but fortunately in the sort of you know the the guards and stuff were more than happy to see someone and have tea and then you know you could sort of poke around Uh, and these kinds of stories um i mean sort of round antioch as well to see the old walls um i mean more or less there is uh what is essentially a sort of syrian refugee camp but again there you know they more or less sort of uh see someone coming uh, and you know, they say, oh, who are you? Where are you from? Like the very friendly, you know, sort of you know, mixture of kind of English, French, Arabic, Turkish, whatever. Um, and then you kind of say, you know, manage to get out, kind of, oh, I'm looking for, you know, the Justinian's Gate or whatever it is. Uh, and um, you know, basically the local kids say, oh, sure. And then you sort of go around these trails and everything else, and there it is. But I mean, it's it's completely unlike. I mean, I think any of these sites, were they in Western Europe, would be, you know, fantastic, you know, fantastically curated and uh, gift shops and everything. However, you know, lots of Turkey, I mean, it's completely out in the wild and you're the only person there and you can just kind of clamber all over it. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic thing to do it. Um, but, yeah, I'd say it was absolutely essential just to work out a few of the, the problems also, because, I mean, sometimes one source says, oh, he went this way. Um, and also says, oh, he went the other way. And then when you actually go there, you realize oh, there's no possible way you could have gone this way in winter. Um, you know, the, you know, this is you know, the complete. So the, the terrain is completely treacherous. It was probably worse back then. Um, and so really just sort of sorting out to some of these problems are very obvious when you just go on the ground um, kind of thing. Plus, I said it was a fantastic break from the library. Um, <laughs> it was uh, a you know, great thing to do, really. And I suppose because um, it, forts, you know, obviously are all built up on hills and isolated spots. The modern world hasn't built over them. And, and so lots of them are still there. And um, there are interesting ruins to discover. And 
Um, that's one of the real pleasures of the book is seeing all these places and realizing what's still out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's it's because lots of the sort of the classical cities are down on the plain, you know, back when things were safer and you didn't need forts. Um, and then you get you know the medieval thing usually just up on the hill above, and that that's the case whether it's Serbia, whether it's Kosovo, uh, whether it's Kosovo, whatever. Excellent. Um, well, as you mentioned, most of your time was inevitably in the library, so we should talk about written sources. Um, you know, something listeners um, wondered was why we didn't know more. Um, I don't know, personal anecdotes about John. And, and as I've hinted, I will talk to them more about our two main Byzantine sources who both um, came along after John's reign, sort of why they, they're not telling you stories about their memory of his him wandering through the capital or whatever. But um, you had to work hard, I, I, I think, to find the non-Byzantine sources and sort of line up the chronologies and work out who was telling the truth and, and who had a better idea of what John was up to than people back in Constantinople. So could you talk about those non-Byzantine sources and how they helped you piece together the narrative? Sure. Happy to, yeah, this, this would be the sort of uh, the black hole that the, uh, you know, my old supervisor referred to because um, essentially, yeah, there is no, um, you know, basic text that just says who did what to who in what order. Um, you know, which even if it's, I think, you know, biased and, you know, terrible and faulty, you know, at least gives you a starting point for most reigns. Um, whereas there is only this sort of, as a very short sections from both uh, Kinemos and Coniatis, as you said, who both of them actually admit, you know, say, we actually don't know all that much about this guy. And so they more or less, you know, forms the kind of prologue um, of both of these. And so in sort of uh, Coniatis' case, uh, I mean, John's reign is almost a kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's, I mean, not quite a century before when he's writing, uh, but he, you know, he's, uh, you know, this sort of like great hero from which all of these other emperors decline. Um, you know, so it's kind of, I mean, Coniatis only has the good stuff, really. Uh, and he massively changes the chronology, you know, whenever he fancies it, you know, to put in a battle there. And then it sometimes even says kind of thing, oh, but I didn't mention this or, oh, I'm putting this here for dramatic effect. Um, so, you know, so Coniatis, you know, has that, has those issues. Whereas Kinemos, I mean, Manu, Manuel is his hero um you know sort of and therefore john is kind of the sort of you know the father who so in some ways he's the kind of you know the great father of the even greater son in other ways he's the sort of you know not as good as the son sort of father uh and so you know you've got these real issues with the texts which you know are the only things that say yeah who did what to who in what order however exactly as you say there are a bunch of things which kind of fill these gaps uh, and what's great about it is that a these aren't written by um uh, you know, sort of essentially academic sitting in Constantinople. I mean, lots of these texts are, you know, sort of more regional. Um, so particularly I'm thinking of, um, you know, you've got your sort of Armenian texts and Syriac texts. So this is kind of, you've got um, what a uh, particular sort of uh, Pejach Michael, um, the Syrian, who uh, particularly being a, a Jacobite Syrian Christian, therefore he, you know, doesn't like the Catholics, doesn't like the Orthodox. I mean, not the split is, you know, there, but, you know, uh, obviously doesn't like the Turks either as an occupied power. Therefore, he doesn't really have this kind of horse in the race you know, he sort of dislikes everyone equally. Um, and therefore, he's actually very honest about sort of what's going on kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, he's sitting in kind of Eastern, modern Eastern Turkey kind of thing, uh, you know, sort of, but is also very well informed, it seems, even about things in the Balkans. Uh, there is, does seem to be a um, Jacobite sort of Eastern bishop at John's court. And so possibly this guy is, you know, sending reports back somehow. Um Equally, you've got, uh, as I said, the Armenian as well, and so particularly for sort of the Crusader stuff. 
you've got the Armenian sources, you've got Arabic, uh, particularly so John is quite well remembered uh, in some of the sources later um, kind of thing. So uh, Ibn al-Athir, Ibn al-Adim kind of thing, sort of uh, even though they're writing again about a century later, um, you know, th- this is quite well. There is one thing from the time, sort of this guy, uh, Ibn Munkid, who um, is uh, from Shaizar, the sort of the city that sort of John lays siege to um, for quite a while. And so he's a boy at the time, but he writes this kind of journal as well. Um, the Crusaders, particularly William of Tyre, uh, I mean, William of Tyre kind of holds John up as uh, you know, he's sort of a bishop of Tyre, and he, he sort of holds John up as kind of a symbol of kind of cooperation between, uh, you know, Latin crusaders and, you know, sort of, you know, the Greek Christians, and say, oh, yeah, under John, this all worked out well. I mean, occasionally, you know, you had, uh, he has this kind of memorable description of um, uh, some of the crusader leaders playing dice in, the, in their tents while uh, John is kind of fighting on the front line, and says, well, really, I mean, they've had the crusaders back John up at this point, this could all have been better. Uh, William, of course, is recruiting for the Third Crusade while he's writing all these things. So, of course, right. you know, again, this is a slight issue here. Um, but otherwise, I mean, the, the main thing really, aside from the buildings we just mentioned kind of thing, which sort of you know, give you a bit of a cross-section of kind of archaeology and text, the real great thing for John's reign once you got into it are these um, court texts. So you've got sort of letters and speeches and things. And I mean, the way this worked really is that, you know, John would sort of, uh, or indeed Alexius Manuel, whoever, would sort of send kind of dispatches back from the battlefield saying, you know, oh, I just won a battle or whatever it is. Uh, and then we have this sort of described that these kind of guys at court would essentially turn this into a sort of um, a speech, a poem um, to be kind of formally presented either at court or alternatively uh, to the people. I mean, during this sort of tri- triumph he has after sort of uh, capturing Castamon. Uh, you know, these triumph, we have these kind of um, poems that were essentially sort of sung out uh, at kind of this particular forum or in the Hippodrome or at Hagia Sophia, uh, which kind of, you know, tells the story of the triumph. I mean, the best kind of modern, I mean, modernish, uh, you know, sort of uh, equivalent would be something like um, Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade, which, you know, was a sort of a poem he wrote about, you know, the Battle of Balaclava and the other charge and stuff. And the kind of if that is your only, you know, sure, it's, it's poetic and it's, you know, sort of say, oh, how wonderful it is and everything else. But at the end of the day, it does tell you there was a battle at a valley. They charged down the wrong one. Uh, you know, it gives you the basics kind of thing. And so lots of these kind of court texts um, are, you know, a fantastic window also into John's reign kind of as it happened. So as much as, you know, sure, Kiniatis, Kiniatis, uh, you know, Kinemos Kiniatis there, uh, you know, most of a century later, you know, 50, 50 to 100 years later, you have that compared to these court texts, which give you a kind of blow by blow as it happened version. So, I mean, not quite the closest thing to a newspaper, but almost. So, yeah, I mean, John's reign was basically a bit of a jigsaw puzzle because there was no who to what to whom what order source. But with all of that, actually, there was a lot. It just took a while to get through, really. So yeah, hopefully that answers the question. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing. Once you start going through all the sources available, you feel like, oh, actually, there's, this isn't a black hole at all. It's just no one's taken the time to go through it all. And um, that's one of the, the really interesting things uh, from my point of view is when you point out the differences between what was said at the time in, in court rhetoric and then what is later remembered. Mm-hmm. And maybe the court rhetoric actually hints at things that later on it's convenient to forget or, or smooth over or, or what have you. Um, well, obviously, I encourage people to read the book to find out more. Um, but so the one thing we are really missing is is someone who, who sort of lived or worked with John, who could give us sort of insights into what he was like as a person. And several listeners sort of said, 
you know, I've enjoyed these episodes, but it's all battles and campaigns and, and very little about what he was like uh, in private life or as a person. Um, do we have hints of that? And what, what sort of sources can give us any sense of what he might have been like? Yeah, so um, I said this is the wonderful thing about some of these letters and things, because um, and also comparing it to what little there is in uh, your main texts, Coniartes and Kinemos, because in Coniartes, as I mentioned, he's this kind of fantastic warrior emperor. And he's, you know, and there's one paragraph right at the end. You know, so, you know, John has died and sort of Coniartes is summing up. Um, and then he sort of said, you know, gives this image of this kind of, um, you know, sort of Spartan warrior emperor. And he sort of has this brief thing about John um, uh, discouraging court fashions and hairstyles and, you know, basically, you know, imposing a kind of military discipline on the court. Um, and equally that sort of, you know, he built churches and monasteries and, you know, essentially he's this kind of, you know, Spartan pious kind of figure. Um, however, also sort of, you know, deeply moral, he does mention kind of thing that apparently he abolished the death penalty. Uh, which which is interesting. There's no way, but you know, no other mention of this really. Uh, but it's quite interesting that Coniartis even says this. Um, and so, I mean, this is kind of you know this one paragraph. And if you read sort of lots of histories, that's kind of you know what people have to work with. However, you do have, as it from these court texts, a few other things. Um, and also, the other one is you have the foundation charter for. Uh, the monastery he and his wife founded, uh, which I think uh, you've sort of mentioned in the second episode uh, on John, uh, sort of Christ Pantocrat, or the, yeah, the sort of, it's now uh, mosque in Istanbul today. Um, and you ha- this is the only thing we have that was actually written by John. Uh, I mean, probably ghost written by, you know, maybe a monk or something, but even so. What is fascinating about this and I, uh, is that you do have um, sort of John sort of, you know, you know, thanking God for, you know, sort of preserving him from, uh, you know, sort of, you know, troubles with his family um, and sort of you know, giving him victory over various things. Uh, and then, of course, particularly he has what um, I and um, sort of a few other historians have noted is kind of a fairly unique uh, declaration of, of love, actually, for his wife, who has just died at this point. I mean, just to sort of read that out, sort of, he says, he says in one particular paragraph, um, for, for, through God's help, I found uh, to share the monastery's planning, construction and completion, my partner and helper in life, that before the complete establishment of the task, she left this world by thy mysterious decision and by her departure cut me apart and left me torn in two. Um, this this is a, an almost unique declaration of love of an emperor for his wife. I mean, I've I've actually looked around, um, and I mean, most emperors, of course, you know, have ten mistresses and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so, I mean, this is that's very interesting in and of itself. And so, I mean, I think the sort of the family aspect is something that sort of you know, does come out in a bunch of sources. Uh, I mean, you know, sort of John's brother, who initially is his loyal, um, you know, follower, sort of at uh, you know, sort of uh, their father's death. And then sort of, you know, briefly tries to launch a coup kind of 12 years later. Uh, however, you know, for this one as well, I mean, so John apparently sort of takes him back, forgives him, you know, prodigal son style uh, at Antioch. Um, you know, equally the fact that sort of Anna as well, um, she, you know, seems to be, you know, quite happily, you know, seeing her kids married at court. Her husband is still, you know, John, one of John's right hand man. Uh, I mean, I think sort of, you know. Uh, John seems to be sort of, if, if anything, overly forgiving. It's also interesting, I thought, so he, has, he and his wife have eight kids, uh, and they're all named after his siblings, who, when they're being born, would have been the ones sort of semi-conspiring against him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I found that's quite interesting. You know, he's got, you know, sort of, you know, he has a daughter called Anna, more or less in the context of sort of Anna manoeuvring against him, uh, which is a bit interesting. 
Um, so I think sort of, you know, John is kind of, you know, the family man is quite, a, is, is quite sort of something that comes out a bit. Uh, the other one um, on the sort of the fashion stuff, I mean, there seems to be John sort of the, seem, uh, military sure, but I mean, there seems to be some, some basic heraldry stuff going on with uh, he uh, sort of it mentions sort of one of his brothers kind of, um, you know, purple by birth, kind of yeah, born in the sort of the purple palace, but blue by rank. Uh, so these kinds of sort of phrases, which and in the later periods, sort of hundred years later, you have a very thick sort of court system of, oh, you're that title, you have, you wear this colour and that crown and everything. And it seems to be John may have been the one, possibly who, you know, along with Alexis and Manuel, who sort of started this a bit. Uh, and so therefore, seeing him as this sort of guy who, you know, imposing kind of, you know, whatever, is maybe a bit too strong. Military, yes, but you know, military pageantry as well. Uh, the other one was just to sort of say, I mean, so, you know, to, to think, oh, you know, he's, you know, just this sort of warrior and everything else is the fact that, of course, he dies early um, there. You know, had John had a retirement in Constantinople, because most emperors, you know, campaign when they're younger and then they have a few years in Constantinople where they do other things. Had he lived for those last years, then we might have a very, very different image because he, he um, uh, patronizes uh, a revision of canon law. Uh, equally of uh, civil law. And so, I mean, I wonder whether there would be this image of kind of, you know, John the lawmaker, you know, Justinian style, had he had a few years in Constantinople to, you know, sort of, you know, do this. Um, so kind of, you know, whether that would be sort of something that, because he seems to be very, you know, very, very into this sort of legal stuff. Um, likewise, um, there is this, uh, just to give you sort of, you know, uh, a completely other perspective, from one of these court poets, we have a few... Um, texts that are addressed to john that are essentially parodies satires and um to be honest kind of a, a bit sort of uh in a bawdy kind of thing i mean well, this is kind of soldier's humor or what exactly um uh so particularly um this uh court poet called theodore progemos um who's forever also you know asking for money because john's always away rather than you know paying him for poems um he uh, has one particular anecdote you know so and this is kind of addressed to john and it seems to be probably to have been the sort of thing that been presented after dinner or something and then it has essentially the story of this kind of uh beleaguered husband uh who then you know basically goes out and get drunk gets drunk uh and then he comes back and his wife and kids won't let him in and then he's sort of you know trying to sort of uh you know force his way in with this sort of broom handle you know through the door um and then sort of you know basically in the sort of the punchline at the end is sort of the wife the wife just saying you know what this reminds me of our wedding night um <laughs> so and you know this is you know addressed to john you know presented to john so obviously uh obviously you know he can't really be this sort of spartan guy with no humor really um kind of thing i don't know if you want to edit that out later just no just... no that's great <laughs> um <laughs> anyway uh so yeah just to sort of summarize that therefore i think part of this is just because you have mainly the sort of uh coniatis kinemos view of john as this kind of you know guy who conquers uh and so you know, saves the empire and otherwise you know sort of move on to you know more uh, you know tortured and you know difficult figures Therefore, you have this, you know, you have this image, uh, whereas actually had a John lived a bit longer and B had a better biographer at the time, then you would have had quite a few different things. Yeah, uh, I should have asked this listener where they heard this, but they, they said, I've heard John is the Byzantine Marcus Aurelius. Oh, yeah. OK, so is that and I wondered if that had come from what you were talking about, the reforms and thing, you know, mm. that he was uh, putting into place. Yeah, a, a well-read listener, um, definitely. So th this is this is the exact line which um, Gibbon uh, uses. You know, sort of right. the great, um, you know, what sort of 18th-century uh, historian of you know, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. 
Um, and obviously, Gibbon usually hates everything Byzantine. You know, sort of classical Rome, good. Byzantine, bad. Is is basically a sum up of most of Gibbon's work, uh, if you'd like, uh, kind of thing, a, a dramatic summary. However, John is one of his few heroes. I mean, he has this line that sort of. Um, uh, Marcus Aurelius would not have disdained his successor of a millennium later or something like that, um, I think is his exact line, which interestingly is kind of directly almost from Coniatis, as Gibbon seems to only use kind of yeah, these sort of slightly imperfect major texts. Um, and so yeah, G- Gibbon basically has, you know, who has just written this huge history of Rome you know, from the beginning. Um, he decides, oh, John sounds quite similar. And this, this has had a bit of a staying power um, kind of thing all the way through. So um I, it's interesting sort of why he makes that, because obviously Marcus Aurelius is particularly, you know, known as sort of the philosopher emperor, all of these things. And, you know, aside from this one monastic charter, we have nothing um, from, you know, sort of written by John himself. So uh, it's interesting that sort of that, that line is, so, you know, whether this is some sort of, you know, accidental hint of, you know, the John we could have known had he lived a bit longer, uh, you know, whether it's sort of its legal codes, whether anything like that. Um, so, yeah, on, on the Byzantine Marcus Aurelius, this is a, this is an interesting li- line from Gibbon that is more or less sort of, uh, you know, taken sort of from Coniates uh, as well, um, whether he deserves it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we have we have no I mean, John, he's very interested in, it seems, sort of, you know, the usual stuff, piety, whatever. But I mean, without more texts actually written by John, um, aside from the military stuff, I'm not sure we can make the comparison, really. No, fair enough. Um well, speaking of the listeners then, I did ask the listeners for questions, so let's go through some of theirs, and I think we may have already touched, or we may have um, hinted at why. Why is John known as the good or the beautiful in some traditions, and, and do we know if that's justified? Yeah, this, this, that, that's, a, that's a fascinating one, particularly because it isn't just uh, a Byzantine tradition. I mean, this appears in actually quite a few, so I mean... Um, uh, I mean, William of Tyre kind of, you know, sort of, um, you know, who, you know, sort of the crusader historian who sort of, you know, you know holds John up as a model of kind of, you know, Greek crusader, um, you know, so cooperation sort of mentions, oh, yeah, he's sort of his lofty character, you know, famous for prowess in war, generous and pious, kind and merciful. Um, and, you know, this, interestingly enough, is also sort of picked up by Ibn al-Athir. Um, you know, sort of who, you know, sort of, you know, who is writing, you know, in Arabic and everything and sort of mentions him as uh, the merciful prince. He's using it slightly ironically as he praises, you know, Imadad din Zengi as sort of the true sort of font of mercy. Uh, but even so, it's, you know, shows one of the enemies, you know, also sort of saying that, oh, yeah, this guy is, is known for his mercy. Um, particularly sort of, let's see, in, in the German tradition, uh, and so sort of John had a number of sort of letters out to the sort of German emperors there, um, you know, he refers to him as Kali Johannes, so sort of, yeah, the Greek sort of, you know, sort of, um, you know, good John, um, yes, yeah, so a Kalos for good. Uh, equally, the, um, one of the sort of um, Balkan sources uh, also sort of has, and also sort of in from Naples, also sort of used this sort of, um, you know, sort of good John. Uh, Ibn al-Adim also uses Kaliani, which is probably Kali Johannes, uh, moving through. Um, so, I mean, and the only one we have from the time is we have the abbot of the um, church at Marseille sends a letter um, and a, a sort of a relic of sort of St. Victor, which is yeah, the church at Marseille kind of thing, to the emperor as a gift. And he addresses him as Callianus as well. So, I mean, this is something that's, that's used quite a lot, even during his lifetime. Um, so, I mean, whether he's earned this particularly through... 
um, some, you know, sort of, I mean, you know, maybe Coniatis is right and he really did, you know, abolish the death penalty or something like that. Um, but it, it is fascinating and uh, that that he's earned this. I mean, the main sort of thing that people usually point to uh, is the monastery he and his wife founded. As, this, as much as, sure, it's a monastery, it also had uh, what is arguably the first kind of modern-style hospital. I mean, that's a very sort of tendentious claim. There's various Arabic hospitals, etc., that have, you know, similarly in Italy. But, I mean, this has uh, dedicated wards for dedicated diseases. Uh, it has a... Um, uh, staff to patient ratio that's probably better than most hospitals these days. Um, <laughs> fascinatingly, it also has um, women's doctors for women's issues, which is which is um, you know very uh, you know I mean more more or less unique for particularly the 12th century. Um, and there's a big sort of teaching aspect. Only oh, there must be doctors who teach other doctors to go forth to other places. Um, and also, it has an attached kind of uh, retirement home, uh, leper colony on a different island. Like well, you know, this is a huge. Uh, philanthropic thing it also specifically says the doctors must not leave to uh, treat private patients for money they have to be there for whoever shows up mm-hmm. uh, and so it's specifically for the poor um there is uh, luckily another actually the hospital the monasteries in constantinople is probably more aimed at uh sort of the rich actually funnily enough uh, so where alexius is dying kind of thing sort of around there um um so yeah so therefore this this sort of philanthropic project that he and his wife do is likely sort of one of the major things he sort of earn, earns this for um you know and so between that uh we only have sort of a very few sort of legal codes but most of those are kind of relatively kind of you know uh progressive which sort of say things like sort of you know he particularly um make sure in the case of divorce that uh, the kids uh, of the marriage and indeed kids of the adultery if there is any both get some money um you know there's a few of these kinds of things which are mm. quite interesting and sort of you know sort of oh there is un- injustice i think i think john in some ways has a kind of i would like to be a good ruler thing going on yeah. um doesn't always succeed but um he you know definitely is like okay what would a good ruler do and then he tries to do it um which which is you know actually sort of relative relatively interesting on this stuff so yeah i mean i'd say if anybody does earn this kind of you know john the good good john uh thing it's um probably him uh, sort of on, on this kind of stuff, admittedly, from what we can tell. Yeah. <laughs> of course, the one place I have been from your whole book is the Pantocrata, which mm. obviously is built up on a hill so that it dominates the skyline. So I'm being slightly cynical in my head saying if John had really cared about the sick, he wouldn't have built it high up on a hill where they'd have to be wheeled up there to get treatment. But I'm, I'm, you, you can't really avoid that in uh, Istanbul. Definitely not. I, I would also say for the, uh, there's, a, there's a grid line that, uh, so for his triumph, where he, uh, he very, and this is a you know, great thing of his piety, he, you know, unlike the ancient Romans, he, he doesn't stand in the triumph, in the chariot. You know, while you know all the cheering crowds and whatever it is, instead he puts an icon of the Virgin Mary in the chariot, uh, and he sort of humbly sort of yeah walks alongside, kind of thing. Um, and immediately there's a, there's a great line I think it's from um, you know, sort of uh, one of these sort of general books on triumph that says yes, so humbly walking alongside you know this golden chariot with a golden icon. I mean, it's about a, you know a spectacular a display of humility as you possibly can do i mean there he is you know sort of cheering crowds the arm <laughs> following him uh and there oh no no i'm just so humble walking alongside the Golden <laughs> whatever, you know um so yeah I, th- I think there is a bit of a you know a, a mix there the sort of the the lover of glory aspect is something else connie artist says uh, and as mm. we heard from the thing i mean a few times he does kind of overplay his hand a bit so as much as yes he's doing what a good emperor would do he's also trying to be you know, Alexander the Great, he's trying to be, you know, sort of the great emperor. Um, he doesn't always pull it off, of course. Yes. I think it's, it is probably impossible, isn't it, to, uh, to marry true humility with the office of emperor. That, you just reminded me, of course, of 
Marcus Aurelius, who who says, you know, don't don't get caught up in the glories of today, but but I will be commissioning that spiral column about my <laughs> my victory. So you know, Fantastic. inevitable. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, stick to John. Um, another listener asked about Anna Komnini. Um, do we have any? evidence uh of what she made of john's reign ah so this is uh, a fascinating question i know you uh you had sort of uh Leonor neville on before on this um so yeah so obviously as um you know she, john is never mentioned directly in the alexiad um and this you know sort of has usually been taken as sort of the first sign of sort of oh you know anna um you know, sort of never, uh, you know, sort of, you know, always, always hated her brother and all this kind of stuff. And I think sort of uh, the work that Leonor Neville has done has been uh, overdue when it comes to sort of rehabilitating uh, the image of Anna as not actually this sort of, you know, sort of bitter old woman who sort of hated her, uh, her brother and nephew and everything else. Because it's, uh, as, as sort of I mentioned earlier, sort of Anna, um, you know, seems to be quite happily at court. Um, you know, sort of for most of uh, the life. And, uh, you know, her husband, Nicophorus Briennius, uh, is quite happily, you know, John Caesar, his, you know, one of his second-hand, uh, you know, second-in-commands, um, you know, goes with him to Antioch the first time. Um, you know, they're very much kind of in the thick of it there. So, I mean, they can't have hated each other that much uh, if they're quite happily going through. I, I think sort of, um, I mean, really it all depends what you think of this inverted commas coup which is sort of, yeah, this elephant in the room here. Because, I mean, Coniates is very uh, explicit when it comes to Anna conspired against him, tried to have him killed, uh, the whole, you know, you know, and, and you wonder, of course, you know, sort of, I mean, how do you come back from that? Uh, and my answer to this is that actually, sort of, if you rely a little bit more on uh, actually what Zonoras has to say on this. So Zonoras is a high-ranking imperial secretary under Alexius, and then at some time after that, so during John's reign, he retires and becomes a monk uh, and then writes a history and indeed also a legal commentary and quite a few other things. He's quite prolific, um, which has led some people to suggest that maybe he sort of left under a cloud and actually was quite young when he became a monk. Um, but anyway, Zonoras says clearly um, in the years before Alexius died um, that uh, there is a moment when he was very ill and he gave power to his wife to kind of look after while he was very ill. And then his wife empowered Nicephorus Briennius and Anna. Uh, so therefore, in some ways, it's Nicephorus Briennius, uh, who is sort of, in, it looks like he's about to take over, um, who is, you know, said the Caesar, and therefore, you know, in some ways, he had the junior emperor, the sort of second in command anyway. And John, of course, is in his early 20s at this point. Now, Zonoras says very uh, plainly that sort of, uh, th this is unacceptable to John, um, he wasn't, even though he'd been crowned co-emperor as a child, um, this, was this was absolutely unacceptable. He's about to, you know, have, you know, he's, he's, he's got children of his own. He's got, you know, sort of, a, what, a three-year-old or something at that point. Um, and therefore, he wasn't going to be, you know, excluded from power for being too young. And then apparently, John approaches various um, senators, so sort of nobles, uh, other family members. This is where his brother Isaac first kind of backs him, it seems. Uh, and there's this kind of manoeuvring. This is in about uh, 1114 um, kind of thing. Uh, if, Alexius had died, if Alexius died at that point. Um, however, Alexius recovers. And therefore, in some ways, this, you know, the, this whole thing never actually happened. Um, and then when 1118 rolls around, obviously, John's had another four years 
to kind of, you know, really sort of be ready for when his father does actually die. Um, and equally, he seems to have basically got everything on side. Uh, at that point. I mean, he's very much got the support of the army. He's been leading his own campaign um, in Serbia kind of thing. Uh, he, um, you know, has really sort of got, got everything sorted by that point. Um, and the what we have from Zonaras in particular uh, is that, you know, initially this sort of image of, you know, John misses his own Alexis' funeral um, in order to kind of, you know, take control of the palace, which of course has the treasury and has all these sort of bits and pieces, you know, to sort of really make sure you, you know, you're firmly in command of the, uh, the state. Um and, uh, you know, at that point, it seems to be that it, uh, what's mentioned is that they're not trying to actually have him killed. His mother, um, his sister, all the rest of it, they're not trying to actually have him murdered. What they're trying to do is essentially share power. Because uh, previously, uh, whenever Alexius was out of uh, the capital, his wife, um, you know, sort of uh, has been running things. Uh, and then fr- and with her, Nikiforos Briennius and Anna, you know, they've been kind of running Constantinople uh, while Alexius and John were out campaigning. And it seems to me anyway that this, you know, Zonaras really sort of who, you know, was there. He's, you know, in the government as a high ranking sort of, you know, imperial secretary, um, just says it that what they wanted was this to continue. Whereas John says, no, I'd actually rather not do this. Um, you know, I don't want to share the emperorship. Um I want to have it myself and then give it to people who I want. Yeah, he doesn't want his mother running things. He doesn't want his, his sister and brother-in-law running things. Though, funnily enough, his brother-in-law, A, does not get involved uh, in any of this kind of stuff, uh, and then also stays on as the Caesar, as his high-ranking general, everything else. Um, and so I, I do I think that sort of Anna genuinely wanted um, her brother dead? No. Um, I think that in some ways she, along with her mother, wa- uh, wanted to kind of, you know, have a share in the power. You know, maybe sort of make Nicephorus Briennius officially co-emperor, uh, who obviously was quite a bit older than John, um, and thereby sort of retain an official kind of, you know, powerful role in Constantinople, which actually John in- eventually gives to his brother Isaac instead uh, as the kind of Sebastocrat or sort of co-emperor, other, you know, figure in Constantinople. Um, the other coup bit, which Connie Artis relates, this only mentions... Um, evil working men uh, who essentially I, I assume were sort of slightly dissatisfied with John um, in the first year or so and therefore decide, oh, how about we sort of try and do something? Or it doesn't actually say necessarily that sort of Anna, etc. are really involved. Um, I mean, it's only Connie Artis who says this. So my general thoughts on sort of Anna and John is that initially it was probably a bit frosty as she wanted a share in, uh, you know, the power sharing arrangement, probably to, you know, follow her mother and indeed grandmother because, uh, you know, before uh, she died kind of thing, um, you know, sort of Ale- uh, Alexius's mother had sort of run things in Constantinople, um, you know, sort of thing. So therefore to basically continue in, you know, in the footsteps of her mother and grandmother as a kind of powerful figure in Constantinople. Uh, John said no, he'd rather give that to the people he decided uh, were best, uh, rather than kind of continue this. And, um, you know, initially, therefore, things frosty, but eventually, you know, more or less, I mean, you know, he gives uh, he gives her all the property back. Um, you know, the kids have high-ranking positions. Nicephorus Briennius is still in there. Um, and it would be interesting to see whether Sir Nicephorus Briennius was writing this history of Alexius. Had he lived a little bit longer, whether he would have gone into... Um, John's reign, you know, what, what would uh, a continuing history of Nicholas Briennius have looked like uh, would have been quite interesting. So when it comes to Anna's reaction to John's reign, I would say that uh, end of the day, no, she probably didn't absolutely hate her brother or anything else. Uh, was she a little bit um, uh, deprived of power by John's decision that he didn't want to continue the policy of his father? Yes. 
Uh, but that's kind of my possibly slightly controversial opinion, uh, which uh, sort of leans heavily into the Zonaras account rather than um, Savannah's own or some of the other ones. Uh, if that's kind of semi-answers that listeners' questions <laughs> and all of that, that, that's more of an opinion. Uh, Two more to go. So some listeners asked about the Roman Navy. This is a constant mm. question, really. Why do the Romans not prioritize their Navy more and so on? Um, can you tell us a bit about uh, John's naval policies? As a reminder to the listeners, obviously, we, at the start of his reign, you've got the Venetians running amok, and it doesn't seem like there's a fleet that can stop them. But we then do see the fleet in action on the Danube and then supplying John's army in Syria. So what else do we know? Sure. So this is uh, the, the, the Navy thing is something that if you read a lot of like general histories, whatever it is, that the, the idea goes that um, Alexis in particular gave these sort of trading rights to the Venetians in exchange for them being um, John, you know, them being the Canadian Navy. Essentially, he's sort of outsourced the Navy to the Venetians. And then at some point, the Venetians turned against him and then it was all downhill from there. And this caused 1204 and the fall of the empire. Uh, and you, you read a lot of things which basically sort of put this, you know, through to Alexius or to John, particularly because, uh, and they sort of pin this on John's finance minister, uh, this guy called John Putzes. Um, as it meant, Coniatis mentions in a sentence or so that John Putzes, in order to save money, decide to decided to collect the taxes for the navy centrally so rather than uh, there being sort of a local tax that went to pay for a local defense fleet sort of thematic fleet of the past era instead this would be collected centrally and spent centrally on a central navy and Connie, i said this is a terrible idea um and this kind of you know got rid of the navy entirely um and this is therefore you know usually held up as one of those things that means the end of byzantium in 1204 um but the you've got a few different, you know, a few other sort of little wrinkles in here. One is the fact that Coniartis absolutely hates John Putzes. Um, Any time he brings this guy up, it is always derogatory. Uh, he talks about him, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, sort of trying to cheat market sellers and like, you know, so all, all of these little anecdotes about John Putzes. You know, so he talks, you know, bad things about his wife as well, and like, you know, saying she's a sort of, you know, uh, a member of a decayed aristocratic family. Um, you know, so I mean, you know. Anything Coniata says about Putzes is, is very coloured for some reason, um, kind of thing. Uh, he sort of comes to a sticky end in Manuel's reign after having amassed too much power, it seems, and therefore is sort of remembered badly. Um, and the other thing was that sort of during this Venetian conflict, uh, the local thematic fleets are still there. I mean, so that this reform actually happens after this. Um, and so, you know, the situation gets a little bit more complicated. And looking into it, it seems that even under Alexius and before, um, you have lots of criticism, even in some Kekomenus and things. You have criticism of um, the local naval leaders basically just taking all the money and not spending it on local fleet at all. Um, essentially, this local tax had been a big issue for a while. I think you read these sources and you have this idea that the thematic fleets were kind of plucky kind of you know local men sort of you know fishermen most of the time and then occasionally sort of you know heroically standing up for byzantium kind of thing um you know so defending rome kind of thing and then you know really they just want to get back to their families and this is kind of you know a bit like the old thematic armies whereas actually so sort of reading the things there is huge criticism about these guys being completely unprofessional um and uh you know all of the money not actually being spent on them anyway and I think that sort of the real change happens with, as I said, this Venetian fleet that goes over to help um, the Crusaders in the Levant. 
uh, and then comes back. And this is a major naval force, which is actually not something that Byzantium has had to deal with for quite a few hundred years. I mean, essentially, when Byzantium is fighting a few pirates or the odd sort of Fatimid raiding party, it doesn't really, you know, localized defense fleets make sense. This is this is ideal, actually, to have a sort of decentralized thing in order to kind of deal with these sort of raids, deal with pirates, that kind of thing. But they're not dealing with that anymore. They're dealing with a uh, major centralized naval force going out to the east, particularly the Venetians, um, but then also sort of, you know, other powers you know, from the west starting to come over. Um, and therefore, little localized defense fleets is going to do absolutely nothing against a major centralized fleet. Uh, equally, I mean, I'll, I'll take the modern example. I mean, name one country in the world today that has a decentralized naval forces. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, generally, I mean, I'd say sort of the reform comes in because they think, OK, look, we have these large fleets that go over as one fleet uh, out to the east now to deal with. Therefore, we need a large centralized fleet in order to deal with that. Um, and therefore, that's what they do kind of thing. And equally, that gets rid of the problem of the whole localized thing. Uh, the accounts of, you know, sort of piracy and all this sort of stuff, that all comes from right at the end of the century. The idea that sort of, you know, oh, well, there's all of these raids and the Norman raid and all of these kinds of things, uh, that all comes up much later. Um, and so during John's reign, and indeed for Manuel, um, you know, actually everything's sort of doing pretty well after this reform. As, as we said, sort of, um, you know, he uses it extensively on the Danube. Uh, my general theory is that sort of actually lots of John's campaigns, he's entirely being supplied by sea. Um, you know, because I mean, particularly sort of when his son dies, you know, they go back by sea immediately. Um, and so that's how he's able to cut through Cilicia and through to Antioch so quickly is that he's being resupplied by the Navy um, mm. the whole time. And of course, you know, Manuel, I mean, he launches invasions of Egypt and all this kind of, you know, you don't do that with no Navy. Um, and so the idea that sort of this this finance reform uh, got rid of the Byzantine Navy is basically just definitely not true because you have all these massive invasions. And I mean, John uses the Navy a lot. Um, and that, so my, my general thing is that so the Navy declines along with a lot of other things um, when the Angeloi come in uh, later. Um, and actually, so during John's reign, you have this sort of centralization in order to face the changed threat of the fact that there are these sort of large centralized navies coming in rather than small raiding parties and everything else, if that roughly sums it up. <laughs> yeah. Well, that and it sort of directly leads us to twelve oh four and uh, large navies coming to Constantinople. Um, th- we're into the 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 realm of theory now because obviously lots of listeners wanted to know. You know, twelve oh four hangs over John. It's it's no spoiler alert to say that you think John is a good emperor. That the book makes a, a case for him being a good emperor. Do you get the sense that something like the Fourth Crusade was inevitable, even? at the end of John's reign, or had the emperors coming after him been as good as he was, could that have been managed or avoided? Um, Counterfactual is always fun, of course. But um, So had John actually imposed some sort of settlement on Antioch, this would have at the very least probably averted the Second Crusade. Because, I mean, had essentially there been either Sir John actually took over uh, both Antioch and maybe even Odessa too, uh, with kind of maybe, you know, maybe not sort of fully, but let's say the sort of the um, crusader princes there as his sort of clients uh, or even sort of vassals in the Western sense. Um, sorry, they... to, sorry to jump in. Uh, I, I, apologies to interrupt. Just for any listeners who aren't aware, I think about three years after John dies, Odessa mm-hmm. is taken um, by the Emir of Mosul and that prompts the Second Crusade, which sort of leads to a worsening of relations between Byzantium and the Latins. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. 
No, no, it's no. I should have, should have said it myself. Thank you. Um, yes, I mean, had John, I mean, either you know, either successfully managed to uh, bring that into the Aegis or just lived a bit longer, the Second Crusade would have been averted. Um, and had therefore there been that kind of settlement, um, either I know either sort of John living uh, a bit longer, or indeed maybe his eldest son not dying, the intended sort of heir who was you know you know sort of very much sort of you know yeah. already been crowned emperor, the whole deal was was very much there. I mean, there is this kind of moment of great, my eldest son has died and my, my other, you know, the second son has died. Now he's got one son in Constantinople and then the youngest son with him. What is he going to do? Uh, then he thinks, well, at least I've probably got a few years in Constantinople to sort this out. And then suddenly he's dying. Um, so, I mean, that could, you know, because, I mean, had he also, you know, uh, taken Konya, Konian, um, you know, that also then suddenly would have you know, really knocked out the sort of, cent- you know, central authority in lots of these sort of Turkish states. Um you, you'd have got sort of a lot of these sort of things happening, but even sort of assuming sort of John dies as uh, you know sort of um, as as he did in you know sort of regular history, and also sort of Manuel takes over. Um, I mean, a lot of these also. I mean, you always talk a lot more about Manuel, um, but in some ways, sort of John's uh, tendencies towards kind of uh, you know sort of glory seeking. Oh, but you know maybe I can do this and I can do that. And of course, sometimes he does. I mean, conquering Cilicia in one campaign is, is huge. Um, not to mention, you know, so the Pechenegs and everything else. So, I mean, had he, had Manuel sort of pulled off a few of his gambles, I mean, had he actually, um, you know, held on to southern Italy for more than a decade, uh, had the Egyptian expedition worked, uh, had, you know, the Myriocephalon campaign not, you know, I mean, there's a lot of these which sort of almost work out. And had, I think even just one of these worked out, and you know, Byzantium would have been in a very different place. Um, but uh, I, I say my general thing is that, so uh, John... Uh, his achievements, I mean, he managed to, he, Alexius John and Manuel managed to turn what had been Turkish-occupied Anatolia into, um, you know, Byzantine territory again. And that's where, you know, the sort of, you know, the Nicene em- Empire would turn up after 1204. I mean, this this Byzantine state that was on uh, Turkish land for a while uh, suddenly ends up being the sort of the heir uh, to Constantinople. Um, and so, I mean, that's a huge achievement in and of itself that isn't usually recognised. That sort of this this place that these places that sort of Alexis John Manuel reconquer end up uh, surviving Constantinople, um, you know, uh, which is sort of big in itself. So, could the whole thing have been inverted? I mean, personally, I'd say lots of this stuff is due to more short-term factors for the An- for the Angeloi. There isn't necessarily some great systemic weakness uh, that dates all the way back to Alexius. Um, could therefore things have been different? Had a few of these things gone another way, definitely uh, w- would be mine. I mean, there's a lot of kind of you know these sort of grand you know, jigsaw puzzles which they're all sort of doing, and I think particularly you know he's trying to sort out the Balkans and sort out Anatolia and sort out the Crusaders and sort out you know all of these things all at the same time. And had he uh, or you know sort of uh, his son Alexis who dies or Manuel managed to like finish some of those jigsaws, then I mean everything's different. Um, yeah. Would- yeah, it would be what I said. So if I, in general, I would say 1204 is much more due to short-term factors, uh, yeah. which would be another podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, that's come up repeatedly, actually, of course, when you do a podcast over a thousand years, that lots of medieval states just got swept away by one defeat. And mm. it's not necessarily that they, they were declining and falling, but if you destroy someone's capital, it can destroy mm. their whole state and something new grows up. But anyway... I think we'll have to <laughs> call it quits for today, but um, we owe you a huge debt of gratitude, both 
for your work and for letting us have the benefit of it before publication. I will, of course, be back on to announce to the listeners when the book comes out. Dr. Lau, thank you so much for your amazing work and for speaking to us today. Absolute pleasure. Uh, you know, thank you very much for having me on. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.